A wonder, a wonder, the wonders are six. The hornbill complains without being sick. The plant flourishes without nourishment. The water runs without being urged. The earth is fixed without pegs. The heavens hold themselves up without supports. In the firmament, he has sown the chickpeas of heaven. These things fill me with wonder. Let us all pray to God, O God, who has caused me to pass the day, cause me to pass the night well. Enrico Cerulli. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and uh, this week and all the weeks prior, and if this is your first episode, I hope you enjoy and will continue to listen as well. And I hope December is starting off good for everyone, um, and uh, I hope everything runs smoothly up until the holidays. I know this is a very busy and stressful time for everyone, so I hope everything goes well for all of you. I don't have any specific feedback from last week's episode. Um, I did have a couple of people, and I've seen it be talked about, um, the Graham Hancock show on Netflix. Um, uh, I forget the name off the top of my head. Um, but uh, I was asked about... Um, by a couple friends what I saw about it and um uh let's just say that I've always enjoyed Graham Hancock's stuff um it's very entertaining if nothing else um Ancient Apocalypse that's the name of the show um it should not be taken uh um it should not be taken though as a very serious work of uh of scholarship It, it is meant well, it's not what he means it as, but it is. it should be taken as a form of entertainment first and foremost, as I've taken all of Graham Hancock's stuff. Though I will say that there are some things that I do agree with Graham on. Um, I do like uh, that he kind of takes a look at comparative mythology stuff. I think, um, and as we'll get into our show, I think there is certain elements of mythology that is quote-unquote true. Although I think he can sometimes accept it a little too much at face value. Um, there's always a certain element of, um, you know, of uh, stuff being couched in um, uh, uh, imagery or just, you know, poetic turns of phrase that may not actually be true. And that's kind of one of those things with myth you always have to take with a grain of salt. As much as I do, you know, think that there are those who dismiss myths too easily and too out of hand. Um, and there are some other things that, just small points that I kind of agree with Graham with, although um, I don't think there's this massive conspiracy by archaeologists or whatever to kind of hide the truth. That's that's certainly not the case. And um, another of the big criticisms I've had for him would be that, you know, we just magically start doing all these things. I think if you've listened fairly regularly to my show that you'll know that we haven't just suddenly started doing agriculture. It's been a slow process and all this other stuff. And um, I I might do like a full breakdown of some of the claims that are just quote unquote um, wrong or inaccurate, but um, it's nothing too serious. Um, 
again, I, I, I encourage you to watch this show. I've only seen the first two episodes so far. Um, and spoiler alert, he has yet to produce a single piece of evidence that is actually proof of any kind of advanced ancient Ice Age civilization. Uh, but uh, it, it's an interesting story, if nothing else. It's a cool style of spirit. And there is some, there is some inter- generally interesting stuff. And I'd encourage you, if you look at these sites that he's go to, to kind of read up on them yourself. But um, yeah, it's, it's not bad. It, it's just... Um, I, there are people who saying that this is dangerous. You you shouldn't watch it because you know it's gonna you know fool all these people and all this other stuff. And I, I would say that there are certainly you know people who can easily be taken taken in by this stuff and they aren't critical enough to kind of understand it. But I wouldn't call it dangerous. I think um, I think that's making just a little too much uh, mountain out of a molehill and. Uh, yeah, but I, I do I do encourage you to watch it. Just keep in mind that um, even there are some archaeologists he's speaking he's spoken to in the show that don't even agree with what he's saying. Like you, you'll see them give a little pushback, and I think there's already been one woman who said that um, she was completely taken out of context. Now that's not to say that Graham Hancock did that. That could just be Netflix editors. But um, just keep in mind and. Um, enjoy it for what it is kind of schlocky um new age hippie mumbo jumbo (laughs) this is essentially what this is to a certain extent um but uh graham is an interesting guy um he has changed a bit of his tune i think he used to be kind of one of those ancient alien guys but he's kind of i don't know if for commercial reasons or because of his show but he's kind of stepped away from some of that now i think it's mostly like there was like a precursor kind of heavily involved um uh psych uh psychic based or like some type of intuitive mental group that kind of spread things around um it's it's very new agey uh very new age religion like from the 60s and 70s um so it, that's always fun to like watch but just don't take it too seriously <laughs> Um, oh, there's another thing that Graham talks about that I kind of agree with him on, that there's very little um, mainstream work on like how psychedelics and like other um, mental stimulants maybe affected uh, human development. Now, obviously, those things aren't affecting the DNA that we pass on, but it, it could change at least for a time how people think. And, um, you know, there's always the, the theory, you know, the stoned ape or the drunk ape theory. Um, which we'll get into the drunk ape theory a little when we get to um, alcohol. I have a special episode planned for that. Um, I've got to set some time up to talk with a friend of mine about that one, but we'll see. Um, it, we'll get to it eventually. But uh, for now, though, uh, we should just go ahead and get focused on the episode. I don't think the actual um, body of this one's going to take too long, but um, I've said that the last couple of weeks, and it's ended up being like 30-minute episodes. So, and I've already rambled for about five on Graham Hamgog. Um, but yes. Um, okay, where are we? Okay, so this week we're going to be focusing focusing on humans living in the Horn of Africa that I haven't mentioned um, in this time frame just yet. Um, this. Um, this might be a two-parter, but I think I'll be able to get through uh, these people in one. So, 
Uh, yeah, I think I should be able to do that. Though, uh, we will probably mention some groups that have been mentioned in the last couple of episodes. We will be returning uh, to the north of Africa one last time before we begin to focus on the rest of the world. Uh, that will uh, that will kind of serve as an end cap on Africa and as a starting point for Southwest Asia, the Middle East. Um, and I did have a question about uh, Nopta Playa's calendar circle. Um, I will be talking about that in the next episode, uh, or in the episode we started North, that, that final North African episode. Um, it's a very interesting site, and I didn't go into too much detail because um, there is obviously some debate about who is at Noptoplaya and when. But let's go ahead, um, and I just kind of get started on the people. So, and I just also want to reiterate, reiterate this. Um, and I had brought it up before, but it's very possible that all the people I'm talking about um, are speaking completely on their languages, or the dispersal of these families is a lot different than what we know now. Um, and there's also people, you know, that maybe their language, you know, died out because they died out. They, they just don't have like a presence outside of anything that's specific. This is all kind of guesswork. Um, I'm just kind of being hopeful that there aren't too many groups that have completely died out unknown. Uh, but to get to the meat of this episode, so um, in addition to the Khoi groups to the south and the Nilo-Saharan speakers in and around the north and west of the region, um, we have a number of groups that are speaking a branch of the Afro-Asiatic family. Now, as you can guess from the name, this language family covers a large number of languages both in the Middle East and Africa. Um, the proto-language of this family could have been spoken as early as 18,000 years ago or as recently as 7500 BCE, which is about 500 years after our time frame for these episodes begins. Um, I mentioned in our prior episode focusing on this region that I felt that it was probably smoking to the earlier end of this range and is or was being spoken definitely at our 10,000 BC mark. Um, another factor um, I mentioned but want to go into a bit more detail on now is where and who developed this language. And this also ties into kind of a time frame question and why I think it was maybe an earlier development. Uh, so there are two main theories of where the Proto-Afro-Asiatic language developed and surprise surprise one of these theories is that says that it was developed from Asia and the other says it came from Africa. Um, now obviously that's a very massive oversimplification. Um, in fact uh, Africa theory is actually multiple theories arguing for a different part of Africa as the birthplace of the language. Um, I'm going to start with the with Asia as it only has the one point to focus on. Um, this theory states that Afro-Asiatic developed in the Levant just prior to the advent of agriculture and the keeping of herds and then spread back into Africa and the rest of the Middle East with those new lifestyles where it quickly grew into separate branches we you know know about today 
Um, well, technically they grew into other branches, which then developed into the languages which we know today, but uh, you get my meaning, I'm sure. Um, the three most popular locations for the Urheimat of the language in Africa, and Urheimat is that German word meaning homeland, uh, the Urheimat of the language in Africa is either Ethiopia, uh, the Sudan, uh, slash the South Sahara, or the Red Sea coast. Now, the Sudan-South Sahara theory seems to be the least popular of these three. And, and when I say that, I mean I haven't been able to find anything super recent that supports it. Um, the most recent, I think that the most recent new article that I was able to find kind of arguing for this was like late 90s. Uh, whereas the other two, I was at least able to find some stuff from within the last two to three years. Um, but essentially what this theory says is that um, the language uh, developed somewhere in the far south, southeast of the Sahara, somewhere close to what is modern Khartoum in Sudan. It then split and one family went immediately to Asia where these uh, were you know, two different branches developed. Uh, the second theory is that it developed in what is now Ethiopia, split into a second group that traveled down the Nile to its delta, and each of the two branches continued to develop and split into more and more families, that home branch in Ethiopia and the one that went down the Nile. The final theory is that the language arose somewhere along the African side of the Red Sea, and from there split into multiple branches, one going, you know, south uh, into Ethiopia, the other going kind of uh, north-westish uh, into, you know, Egypt. Um, and this theory um, specifically places its emergence from about 9500 BC, um, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, from 9500 to later. Uh, BCE. And the reason for this is because the term for dog and arrow are extremely similar across all these branches. And we have no records of dogs being in the Middle East, much less Africa, until about 12,000 BC. And um, arrowheads haven't been, founding, haven't been found dating earlier to 9,500 in the regions that Afro-Asiatic Afro speakers are you know, expected to be living in. Now, uh, there are a couple of things that could explain this. First, just because they haven't found arrowheads in the region doesn't mean that they don't know about them. It just meant that they weren't as useful tools for hunting the type of game or defending themselves that the uh, Proto-Afroasiatic speakers favored. But um, as time went on, the type of game they're hunting is getting smaller and arrows are probably becoming more effective. Um, and we have plenty of evidence of neighboring groups using similar technology for long periods of time, even you know before this. Uh, secondly, just because dog bones aren't found doesn't mean they aren't in the area or have been encountered. Um, in fact, uh, maybe they had like a wild version of dogs that got there earlier and they just hunted them all, or 
you know, maybe it was a term for wolf or something similar. Um, though I will admit that is one of the more difficult pieces of data to explain away. And makes me think that the, you know, the 10 to 9500 BCE arc might be more accurate. Um, now there have been efforts to tie the language spread to DNA results, uh, particularly via Y chromosome tests. And uh, I'm not going to get too in depth on those because there are missing segments of populations that are still waiting to be tested. Um, that said, they do provide some results that I think help some theories more than others. Though, I should say they don't show that any of these theories is out and out wrong. It merely shows that some branches of the family share a much different ethnic makeup, which, honestly, that shouldn't surprise anyone, given the age and you know geographic range of this family. Um, the fact of the matter is, I doubt any of these theories uh, get the development and distribution 100% correct. Uh, though, if I had to put money on one of these being more right than others, it would be the African kind of Red Sea hypothesis. Um, though I wouldn't be surprised if it happened, you know, a thousand to 1500 years earlier than imagined. And I feel, you know, that there were, there's probably more back migration and integration between subfamilies during the early days of the split than might be imagined. Um, not to mention neighboring non-Afroasiatic -Afro speaking groups, you know, they could have served as, um, you know, uh, bridges between two separate groups, um, like, you know, passing things along, um, not just between Afroasiatic groups, but between Nilo-Saharan, so on and so forth. Um, but, um, so, um, I'll be covering the peoples of this area and in the remaining parts of North Africa based on this theory being correct. And, you know, within the next 10 years, this could all be thrown out the window. Um, of course, depending on how things break down with, you know, archaeological results and all this other kind of things. Another factor to keep in mind is that some of these ethnic and tribal groups today uh, speak different branches of this family, and that can make things um, harder to unravel. Um, specifically, um, I'll just jump ahead. There's this group known as the Beja. Um, their native language is Cushitic, uh, which is a branch of Afroasiatic, but they basically have um, some of their ethnic groups speak Arabic, uh, which is a Semitic language, which is also Afroasiatic, but they're, you know, it's a different two different branches of the same family. And then there's a third that I think speak a, another language that's Afroasiatic. I forget the, that one specifically, but so it, it can be a little hard at times uh, to kind of break down peoples, um, at least based on language. Um, but at this time frame, I think there are three to two and a half uh, branches of speakers to discuss. Um, the one we're not going to talk about in this episode is the kind of the proto-ancient Egyptian Semitic branch. Uh, we'll get more into them next time. Uh, the one we're going to dive into right now, the main uh, study for this episode, is the Cushitic speakers. Um, and today these people have expanded to live in 
the far southeast of modern Egypt, all the way along the inland of the Horn of Africa and its coast down into Kenya. Um, I think uh, the Oromo people and the Somali people are the two largest, um, or the Oromo and the Somali language are the two um, largest subsects of this family that exist today. Um, but uh, that's jumping ahead, and we're not going to talk about them too much right now. But um, at our time frame, these peoples are somewhere probably on the eastern side of the Nile, up to the Red Sea. And they're also beginning to experiment with uh, horticulture and animal herding, the same as their neighbors. Um, when we get to our next domestication episode, I'll go into the domestication of the donkey, which was probably done in this region by some Cushitic-speaking group. Um, now, this region is not well documented, unfortunately, until later. Um, and, uh, but we do have oral traditions from a lot of the local groups and records from people bordering this region or who are visiting this region as traders. Uh, these peoples will eventually develop into a more and more um, complex political units and not just those groups that are sedentary they will also develop um, confederations of you know nomadic pastoralists or at least semi-nomadic pastoralists um, so they don't have a very strong central state but they do have a very strong um, bands of groups that join together for a number of reasons <clears throat> um and we will dive into these units as they developed, but these peoples will also be involved with their neighbors to the north in Egypt and Numidia, in addition to forming, or probably forming, their own polities uh, that will interact with both with both of those and those in Arabia and the Far East, or I'm sorry, uh, in India, but. Um, these uh, specifically being the lands of Damat and Punt, uh, which we will again dive into the future. And, it, and I should say that it's not 100% these peoples are Cushitic, but there's a good possibility. And if they're not fully Cushitic, they definitely incorporated some Cushitic speakers into their um, lands and government, at least to some extent or another. Um, now, these peoples obviously had their own religious traditions. Um, unfortunately, most of these are lost to time. Um, both Orthodox Christianity and Islam have spread among the peoples of this region for a very long time. But at least some of their indigenous religious traditions have lasted until today. Um, the main one that I know about is, uh, is where this quote at the start of our episode came from. Uh, it's from like a... It's from a song that was translated by uh, an Italian who um, kind of shared it with the rest of the world. But it is uh, it is known as uh, Wakafana or Ebewak. Um, now, this isn't the easiest thing to find sources on, so takes this with a grain of salt. And um, no doubt this religion and its practices have changed over time. And course what what it is today has been influenced by Christianity and Islam as well as other indigenous religions 
in the area and for, you know outside of it um that's not unusual though religions evolve over time you know everywhere especially if they're actively practiced um and there are you know there are at least sources that claim that there are other Cushitic groups or people who again live where the Cushitic speakers today live um, that they also had a religion that was based on worship of the sun and the stars, or I'm sorry, the moon and the stars, although uh, there are those that claim that this is actually just kind of a political religion that the elites practice that was implemented or adopted from um, those in Arabia or the Fertile Crescent. Uh, but we're going to get into all that in the future, but just keep in mind that this is not a universal religion even in the past, even though it was probably more widely spread then. But um, the simplest breakdown of this faith is that there is a supreme god known as Wok, or Jock. Um, he created humanity. Uh, he is basically um, a very, I mean, he's benevolent. He's not like a trickster god. Um, he cares about humans and all of his creation, uh, not just humans. Um, to kind of help these uh, creations, he created uh, lesser spirits or gods called the Aya Anli or the Aya Ana, depending on which group you're speaking to. Um, and these protectors, um, these are you know protective spirits. They uh, they all have their own kind of domains that they watch over and that they serve as intermediates with. Um, Wok's creation and Wok himself. Um, and I should say that these multiple names are split between, um, again, modern distinctions, so don't take it, think of it this time, but this is the examples. Um, the Oromo and the Somali, uh, these two different people, they both used Wok. Uh, there are differences that are regional. There are also a group that practices walk in as far south as Kenya. I forget the name of that ethnic group, but I'll have to obviously we'll get to them eventually. But So just keep in mind that there are regional variations of this. This is just very broad overview. Um, I will say though, I believe the Oromo still use walk and a non um, Wakafana or Ebe Wak. Um, uh, they use that as the term for God. Like as, a, as like Christian or Islam as well. Um, but in addition to the Ayaana, um, there is also Nadar, who is the kind of a, a spirit or god of justice and a writer of wrongs. Um, he kind of serves as a, um, as a kind of avenger for people who have been wronged. Um, I know that uh, people who are um, wrongfully like exiled from their groups or you know their cities or wherever uh, they tend to pray to him for like swift uh, swift uh, revocation of this wrong done to them there is also her or hewer uh, this is a bird-like spirit who is um, is either a spirit or a messenger of death um, and he, he's an interesting figure because there are those who link him to Horus of Egyptian myth. And if they are linked 
uh, it is a very ancient one, probably from the time frame of this episode or even earlier. Uh, Hur or Hur and Horus have very similar names. They're both bird-like and they're very closely associated with death or the king of the dead, uh, such as Osiris in Horus's case. Horus is Osiris's son. Um, but um, again, if there is a connection between it, it's very ancient uh, and they diverged and became much more unique from each other. I don't believe uh, Hewer is much liked necessarily by the um, uh, Wakafana. Uh, I think um, because, well, obviously he's a spirit of death. I think they recognize him as a kind of a necessary evil, uh, whereas a Horus becomes much more than just um, the, you know, he is not just a um, an extension of death. He's his own, his kind of his own aspect and deity, which we'll get into when we get to Egyptian religion, um, you know, in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, so very interesting group, uh, the early uh, Cushitic and even the modern Cushitic speakers. Uh, there's a lot of different interesting traditions. Um, <clears throat> and I believe this is the largest branch of the family in terms of speakers that is still extant in Africa. I don't think Arabic has completely overtaken them, at least as native speakers, but I could be wrong about that. I should probably, um, I should probably double check that. Uh, but I know that Arabic is not necessarily a unified language. There's a lot of different, uh, dialects for it, but I, I should dive into that a little bit more. So take that also with a grain of salt. Um, and the second branch or half branch of Afroasiatic speakers I'm going to talk about in this episode is um, the Omotic branch. Um, and uh, that is O-M-O-T-I-C. And, Oma and uh, Omotic is not to be confused with the Oromo, who are a different group of um, uh, the Afroasiatic family. I think I may have conflated those two in our last episode. Um, or if I did, it was unintentional. It was just they're similar sounding names. But the Omotic speakers are different than the Oromo, who are a Cushitic group. Um, but uh, there is a debate about whether or not Omotic should be included in this uh, family. Uh, our old friend Joseph Greenberg considered this to be a very early divergence from the Cushitic branch. Uh, others say that this language is its own branch of Afro-Asiatic. And there are those that still further claim that this group is actually a descendant language of a sister tongue of Proto-Afro-Asiatic. And then there are those, of course, that say that they're unrelated completely. Um, the name for this branch comes from the Oma River, which is where most of the um, speakers of one of these languages kind of all live in and around that area. And the Oma was in the, I think, far southeast of uh, Ethiopia, or what is today Ethiopia. As for how old the split may be, uh, there is, uh, I read something from, I think, around the mid-2000s, is that um, 
basically these people share a lot of words when it comes to the similarities with uh, things like honey and procuring honey, uh, but they don't have a lot of similarities for things when it comes to uh, cattle pastoralism. So it's possible that this was a certainly a very early branch indeed, and that it, uh, it split before uh, cattle culture became prevalent in the area. Um, but uh, this is, I think, one of the smaller families of the, um, of the Afro-Asiatic group. Um, not to say that it is tiny, but uh, I think most of the larger groups of the speakers today, um, I think they have, you know, just around a million to a million and a half for most of them. Some even have less than that. Some only have a couple hundred thousand. Um, but, uh, and then of course there are those that are even smaller. Um, couldn't get too much about these people. At least um, they're not, again, this area is not very well documented. And these people themselves are unfortunately very, um, very neglected, at least when it comes to studies. Um, at least as far as I can able, I'm able to tell. I will try and of course look in to these more, especially when we get into um, more like uh, more documented time frames to kind of see what these people are doing. Um, but uh, it's a it's a very interesting branch, a very small branch, but a very old branch uh, nonetheless. And these people are um, they're probably intermediaries at least uh, at this stage. Again, these are, might be some. Um, that uh, due to their isolation uh, from you know, the rest of the Afroasiatic groups uh, and being in the Omo River um, Valley or water system, it might have allowed them to interact a little bit more easily with um, groups along the Nile or Nilo-Saharan region or possibly even Khoi groups uh, that are still that far north. But um, again, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot I can really get into with these people um, at this point in time as much as I would like to kind of give them a fair shake and kind of discussion. But unfortunately, uh, there's just not enough sources uh, that I could find and even sources in another language are very hard to find. Um, I, would, I would almost hazard to Google Translate some of them and just try to break down the very basics of what's being said. but. Um, I won't do that, at least for this time frame. As we get further into the future, uh, and we can maybe more readily identify these people or their descendants, um, we'll get into that. But yeah, so that's kind of the main people I want to talk about for this region uh, at this time frame. Uh, next week we'll follow along the Nile River back to the north, and that episode will kind of serve as a transition between North Africa and Southwest Asia because there is definitely interaction between uh, some of these peoples at this time. And then we will, of course, move into Asia uh, firmly for the next run, probably, um, probably for the next month or so. Um, probably a month and a half, two months. But I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. If you have any feedback or any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can reach me at our uh, email, which is war 
adrevpod at gmail.com. And you can also reach me uh, via direct message on Twitter. And if there's an option to contact the creator on any of our distribution sites, that should forward to me. But if you have contacted me there and haven't heard from me, uh, reach out at one of those other two primary sources. But uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope you have a good evening, day, whatever. And yeah, take it easy. Goodbye.